Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. We're going to jump in. We're going to uh, continue in the series that we're calling Jesus. Right? Our goal is to, we just want to see Jesus. We want to look at different encounters that Jesus had with people. Not so much like uh, famous teachings of his, like the Sermon on the Mount or different things, but like when Jesus met with people, what happened? When somebody came face to face with Jesus, what did that look like? Oftentimes they were changed. Oftentimes they were healed. Sometimes they walked away. Lots of people came face to face with Jesus and then just decided that wasn't for them, right? But we want to look at these encounters and then our goal is not just to look third person at encounters and say that was then, but then also invite Jesus into us. And so I want to encounter Jesus myself through this encounter, that the, the stories would jump off the pages of the Bible and that we get to see Jesus ourselves. So today we're going to engage with an encounter with Jesus that marked most of the New Testament and radically changed the church. We're going to talk about the conversion uh, the encounter of Saul with Jesus. And uh, if you know the name Paul in the New Testament, same dude, okay? Goes by two different names in the New Testament, Saul and Paul, and we're going to get into his story today. So I'm going to invite Karen up, and Karen is going to read our text this morning. Coming out of Acts 9, if you have a Bible and you want to open that up yourself, you can do that. Otherwise, it's going to be on the screen too. <coughs> Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belongings to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. <coughs> now as he went on his way, as he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he's, he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil has he done to your saints at Jerusalem? And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who called on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings 
and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And his eyes, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. He, then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Amen. Thanks, Karen. Such, such a good and powerful uh, encounter with Jesus. So I want to uh, start just by taking a, a quick quiz around the room to say, who was Saul? Um, what do you guys know about Saul? Uh, and we'll start there. We'll get a little bit of background, and then we'll jump full on into this encounter. What do you guys know about Saul? Where's he from? What's his upbringing? What's he doing? Any of that? Say that again. He's a Pharisee. Yep. He is a Pharisee. We'll get into that. He's from Tarsus. Okay. Other stuff? Teacher of the law. He is persecuting Christians. Right? Say that again. Dual citizenship. Right? He's a citizen of Rome and uh, he's a citizen of Israel. Somebody over here? Anybody else? Yes, he did. Stephen's getting stoned. Um, I mean, being stoned, right? And uh, Paul, Saul, holds the coats of everybody. It's a good distinction to make. <laughs> Stephen isn't choosing that. <laughs> and he's not relaxed in the moment. Um, it's actually not a good deal for him. Okay? And Saul's there looking on and saying, I, I approve of that. Other quick background information? Yeah, Saul had a reputation of being uh, um, a, a chief among persecutors. Yeah. yeah, let's jump in. So again, I said, this is the Apostle Paul, right? The Apostle Paul who wrote most of the New Testament. If you look into the the letters in the New Testament after Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you get to Acts. Then it gets to Romans, and Paul's uh, authorship takes over, and he writes most of the books in the New Testament. Uh, this is that guy. He's a missionary to Gentiles. He's carrying the gospel all over the known world in that time, and he didn't start there. He actually started on a way, way, way different track. So his Hebrew... Jewish name is Saul, and his Greek name is Paul. One misconception is this encounter, there's a name change. He goes from Saul to being Paul. That's not really true. He had two names, depending on which culture he was primarily engaging with at the time. So uh, even after this count encounter, he goes on to be called Saul, right? It depends on uh, where he's at, what culture he's in. That was, uh, that was something that uh, helped me to correct in my own mind because I had that there are lots of stories in the Bible where like Abram becomes Abraham right and God changes somebody's name and I just had always grown up comfortable with the idea that this was one of those 
that's not really the case here. Saul, Paul, same dude, carries the two different names uh, for most of his life. Acts 22.3 says that he's from Tarsus. We also read that here. Ananias has heard of this guy, Saul, from Tarsus. Uh, Tarsus, if you know uh, the Middle East, not many of us do, Tarsus is uh, way north of Jerusalem uh, and Palestine and Capernaum, where Jesus does most of his hanging out. Way north, you hit the top of the Mediterranean Sea, and then you move west a little bit. Tarsus is up there. So it's, it's quite a journey from where he has grown up. Uh, Acts 22.3 also says that Saul studied, studied under Gamaliel. So Gamaliel is one of the leading rabbis of the day. Super famous. I've heard like there were two that were like two schools of thought, and Gamaliel's leading one of them. So to be in this school is highly prestigious. It's like going to Yale to study under Gamaliel. Galatians 1.14 describes Saul as kind of a prodigy. It says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So Saul's not just kind of half in, half out, right? He's all the way in. Passionate dude, studying uh, in a prestigious setting and going for it and excelling among his peers. In Philippians 3, 4 through 7, he kind of runs down his resume. This is what, uh, in human terms, Saul could look back on and say, this is what I accumulated as far as achievements. He said in Philippians 3, 4 through 7, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. And this is at the point that Saul encounters Jesus, Saul, I think, has confidence in his flesh. He's got confidence in these things he's about to list. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, which was uh, a ritual rite of Israel, of the people, Hebrews, that they would do this, everything was done properly. That's what he's saying. He's of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. And he's going down his genealogy and saying, like, I am... Uh, I can track my heritage all the way back. I'm as pure as it gets here. He says, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm not just uh, part of the group. I like lead this nation, right? As to the law, this is, now when they got excited about following the law, he's saying there's a way that we live and um, our culture revolves around it. As to the law, he said, a Pharisee. So this isn't just somebody who's living there. This is somebody who's studying it and leading it and then looking down on others because they're not quite as zealous or passionate as they are. He's a Pharisee. As to zeal or passion, he's a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Saul is listing out his resume saying, like, I had it all. I have achieved this. I've studied. I've led. I'm leading the way. And did you catch the line in there? And he says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He's, he's holding that up as an accomplishment. Like, I am so passionate about our ways that I will destroy anything that could uh, threaten it. He persecuted Christians. So Jane mentioned 
holding Stephen's coat. If you back up a little bit from what Karen read in Acts 9 this morning, if you back up into Acts 7, 58, Stephen is on trial. Stephen uh, is a man who's following Jesus. He's part of the early church. He was described as being full of the Spirit. When they look for people who can start to get really engaged in ministry, they don't look for people just with skills or gifts. What they're doing is saying, who's somebody who's filled with the Spirit? Who's somebody who's growing in the way, in following Jesus and being transformed? And Stephen comes to mind. And so they get him involved, and then Stephen gets arrested. And they're like, you got to stop this. And he, instead of stopping, he actually steps it up. And he says, I want you to know Jesus. And you killed him, but he rose. He's alive, and he's leading. And they get so infuriated by him that it says uh, in Acts 7, 58, they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's our Saul. They're laying down his garments. Almost like at that moment, he's just a coat check, right? He's not fully engaged yet, but he's up and coming. He's growing. He's not the one doing the stoning at this point, but he's holding all of the coats of those who are. And he would continue to grow up into um, someone who was leading that charge. Acts 8.1 says, Saul approved of his execution, of Stephen's execution. He said, yep, it's good. We should kill him. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So here's just a little rabbit trail. The person... The persecution of the church starts. What are they trying to do? They're trying to kill the church. What happens? The church spreads to all around, right? God, in the face of persecution, says, you want to kill the church? My church is going to grow like wildfire now. Like, I can take disaster and use it for the kingdom. And the fame of Jesus grows. It was the exact opposite of what the persecutors were hoping for. Saul's getting his start, and then he's growing. Acts, uh, Acts 8, 3 says, Saul was ravaging the church. So this shows him progressing. Now he's not just a coat holder, right? Saul was ravaging the church. This isn't just taunting the church. This isn't just name-calling the church. You use ravaging for a different kind of action, right? Paul is, Saul is ravaging the church. Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So he's not, um, it doesn't show him actively killing people. What it does is it, it shows him rounding people up. He'd bust into homes and say, hey, I hear you're Christians. I hear you follow Jesus. I have the authority to remove you from your home. I'm going to take you to prison. You'll be tried and eventually executed. I can't wait. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to take you uh, down that road. Acts 22, 4, Saul says, I persecuted this way. The way became uh, a way that they communicated who are the followers of Jesus, the church in the early days. It was called the way, where Jesus says, I am the way the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This was a shortened way of saying we follow Jesus. That's our way. 
I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. Acts 26, 9 through 11. He said, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. He's saying, I'm not passive in any part of this. I'm all in. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. That is, I tried to make them renounce their faith in Jesus. I would put the pressure on to say, give up. Give up God. You can live. All you got to say is, Jesus is not alive. I don't follow Jesus. I'm done with that. And you'll be safe, right? And they didn't. They went down to death, clinging to Jesus. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Galatians 1.13, he's writing later on in life, you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Now, why is he doing this? Why would he persecute the followers of Jesus? Because Jesus was dead in his mind. Jesus had been killed, and not only killed, he had been crucified. Old Testament scripture says, cursed is anybody who's hung on a tree. And so Paul, Saul, is looking at Jesus and saying, this guy was cursed. This guy was from the devil, and he's dead. These people are going around saying he's the Messiah. He's the one that God was uh, sending to save them from their trouble, and they're so off. And they're leading others astray. Anybody who would follow Jesus is a fool. Anybody who would lead others to follow Jesus is worse than a fool. Would God use someone who was cursed and killed? No way, says Saul. And now these people are going around saying Jesus is alive. And they say they're doing miracles in his name. Clearly, Saul thought this was the work of the devil. Jesus was dead, and he wanted the cult following dead, too. So then what happened? His story doesn't end there. He says in 1 Timothy 1.13, I received mercy. I love it, how he can like capture this encounter that we're about to, that Karen read and we're about to dig into. He kind of encapsulates this encounter by saying, I did all these things, and then I received mercy. Something changed his life. Or we say, someone changed his life. So Acts 9, 1 and 2, our text this morning, it starts out saying, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. What, what's going on here is he's asking, he's asking the church leaders, asking the synagogue leaders for letters to say, this man has authority to round up anybody who is creating all this turmoil and bring them back so that they can face charges. Uh, 
You give me the letters, and I can go and speak on, I'm, I'm doing this in the name of the leaders. Why Damascus? Well, remember we had looked at Acts 26, 11. I, I persecuted them even to foreign cities, right? Paul is looking around saying, where is the way growing? Where are the followers of Jesus starting to grow? I'm going to go there. I'm going to round them up. And so Damascus is a ways. Damascus is a long way away from Jerusalem. It's like 100 miles or 150 miles. It would take some time to get there, but he's so passionate about this. I'm going to check off city after city after city where there, I, I hear that there's a following growing, and I'm going to go there. So Damascus is one of those places, right? He's getting letters, and he's going with the authority of uh, the people. And then things get interesting. Acts 9, 3 through 9. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground. Although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. I did, that, that is a chunk that is powerful. What jumps out to you in that section? What observations can we make? Um, what really stands out as we read through that passage? What lifts off the page for you guys? Say again. He's, he's knocked down by the light, and he says, who are you, Lord, right? Which kind of says, well, what does the word Lord mean? The word Lord wasn't just reserved for Jesus and God the way we do it. A Lord was somebody, in, somebody who was clearly powerful, right? So there are a couple of different, a couple of different uh, thoughts that people have when they go into, like, when he uses this word. He could be just saying, who are you, sir? Like, I don't, I don't know what's going on. He could be saying, clearly you are someone in, that has power, right? I'm getting knocked on my bottom, and I, I can't see, right? Who are you? Or a third option is he's actually saying, I think God just showed up, right? Who are you? Uh, all, all three of those are possibilities. We're not told which one he's using. He doesn't know it's Jesus. He's not saying, who are you, Jesus? And he says, I'm Jesus, right? That's not the exchange. Okay, good. Other observations? Yeah, he doesn't fight back. Who are you? I'm Jesus. Oh, you're the one I'm after. Actually, that's kind of a freaky moment, right? You're dead. You're dead. What do you mean, you're Jesus? They've all been saying that you're, you're alive again. I've been killing them for it, and now you're standing in front of me? This is either some kind of wicked prank, or this changes everything, right? Yep. Other things that jump off? Yeah. Yeah, 
The men who are with him don't see Jesus. They do see the light. They hear. And so what, uh, what Luke is writing down here is this is an actual event. This isn't just happening in Saul's head, right? Where all of a sudden he has a migraine and he goes down and God speaks to him just in his brain, which could have happened. But Luke is saying this was an event. This physically happened. Jesus showed up. They can see the event happening. They don't get... They don't get the full picture, but they know something amazing is going down. Yeah, good. Yeah, Todd. Saul is on a road to Damascus, and we are Damascus Road. Yeah. So there's like this clue. We take our cue, our history, our origin story comes from here. That's sometimes in life. We're going down a road that we have thought was the way marked out for us. And God gets in the way and changes everything, right, in a good way. All of a sudden, we see what we have not been able to see, and it changes everything. Good. Anything else? This isn't like a passing, he got up and like, oh, I'm all good now. Jesus and I are besties, right? For the next three days, he couldn't see, he couldn't eat, he couldn't drink. This, like, this is traumatic in his life. We know that it's a traumatic healing, if you can say it that way. That God is getting his attention and healing him. This is not God punishing him. This is God showing up and saying, when Paul summed it up later, said, I received mercy. Sometimes mercy comes with a smack in the face, right? Sometimes mercy is hard, but it's a gift. And he's, God is pursuing him and healing him in the process. But it shook him up. It shook him up for sure. Yeah, Emma. Jesus spent three days dead in the tomb. Paul spends three days without sight, without food, without water. He goes through his own death and rebirth kind of process, right? He's dying to what was, and he's coming up something new. So at the end of three days, the scales are falling off. The Holy Spirit is coming and indwelling him. He's rising up a new creation. And this is all part of that process. I don't think it's an accident when Jesus says uh, three days blind. Like there's a um, he's joining Jesus. He's joining with Jesus. Jesus is coming alongside him. Say again. Yes. This is a new experience for him. He's utterly helpless. He needs the people who are with him to take him by the hand. How often has that happened with Saul? He's the one giving orders. He's the one leading the parade. He's, he's the one 
calling the shots. And maybe for the first time in his life, or as long as he can remember, now he's helpless. Now the people who are with him have to lead him to where he's going to get help. He can't do it. This is a brand new experience for Paul. Right? So a light from heaven shows up. It startles him so much it knocks him backward onto the ground. He says, who are you? And it says, the, the voice calls out, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now that's odd, isn't it? Paul says, Saul says, I'm persecuting the church. You say I'm persecuting you. Right? Jesus takes this so personally, which to me in my head, it makes sense that one of the leading metaphors that Paul starts to grow into when he talks about the church is the body of Christ. That we are the body. When you persecute the church, you persecute the body. You persecute Jesus himself. Right? That makes sense. There's a connection because Jesus met him and said, this isn't just about them. This is about me and what you're doing to me and my body. For the first time in your life, you're going to be told what to do. And he's blinded, but the blinding is leading to something else. Now let's talk about light for a little bit. This bright light shows up, and then Jesus speaks. The light is announcing the presence of God, right? The light from heaven shows up, and then Jesus speaks out of it. It's announcing the presence of God. And this has, this has Old Testament written all over it. Rabbis and Old Testament believers had this term uh, for the glory of God, the presence of God. You guys know what that term is? Shekinah. The Shekinah glory was all about the presence of God showing up in clear and obvious and overwhelming ways. Specifically when God showed up with his people. It shows up in Egypt when God's presence is leading the people out of Egypt. Remember how it has the pillar of cloud by day and uh, the fire by night, and it's leading them out of Egypt, right? They would call that the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God, visibly seeing God's presence in our midst. When they finished the tabernacle, this uh, beautiful tent that could be taken down and put up on, as they traveled to the promised land, when they finished it, they set it up so God's presence descended in a way that everybody could see, and that was called the Shekinah glory. So in Exodus 33, I love this. In Exodus 33, Moses is up on the mountain talking with God, and he's sort of standing in the gap between God and the people. What had happened was way back in Exodus 19, uh, and 20, Moses is up on the mountain the first time, and God gives him the Ten Commandments on two tablets, right? And you, have you seen the old movie? Like, he comes down with these huge stone tablets, and what are they doing? They're ready to receive the commandments of God, right? No. No. They just built this huge golden calf because they were bored and needed something to worship, right? And Moses gets so mad that he throws the tablets on the ground, smashes them, and they're broken. We're like, wait, that was, we needed that. So he goes back up on the mountain, and he's talking with God so that God can give it to him a second time, which is, I'm not sure if you've ever known that before. The, the uh, Ten Commandments that get carried around by the people in the Ark of the Covenant are the second copy, because the first one got smashed because they were not ready to receive them. 
right? So he's up on the mountain. He's getting ready to receive them again. And he makes this request, this bold request. God, we've been talking. You've been revealing yourself. You want to show the people how to live the way they were created to live. And Moses gets bold and he says, hey, show me your glory. I want to see, I want to see how glorious you are. In Exodus 33, 18 through 23, Moses said, please show me your glory. That's the Shekinah, right? That's the presence of God. I want to see it. I want to see the glory. And, he, and God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, God said to Moses, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. What he's saying is, I am way too overwhelming for what you're requesting. You, if you saw me fully unveiled, you would not be able to stand up in my presence. And so I'm going to let you see me, but not everything, right? And God says in verse 21, the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand in the rock. So like there's this kind of, uh, cave crevice thing that Moses gets to like curl back into like okay okay wow this is gonna happen I need to duck back in here and God says uh, while my glory passes by I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back but not but my face shall not be seen God says you want to see my glory I'm only going to show you my backside <laughs> which is probably not the way it's intended to be read, right? You want to see my glory, I'm only going to give you a little bit. Because you can't handle, you cannot handle how glorious I am. And yet I want you to know me. I want you to have as much as you can receive. I'm going to cover you until just a glimpse is there for you. And you get to see. I'll show you my glory, but I need to protect you. He's so overwhelming. God is so amazing. He's so glorious. And he says, yes, I want you to see me. But you're not, you're not ready for the whole thing. And so Moses sees God, and he comes down from the mountain, and he looks different. Exodus 34, 29 says, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that, his, that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. And everyone is afraid of it. You guys, he comes down from the mountain and his face is glowing. He met with God. He saw his glory just a little bit. God had to like hide him in a rock and then put his hand over his face and then say, okay, no, 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 catch it before it's gone. And that was enough. As he's talking with God, his face starts to glow and he comes down from the mountain with the tablets and a glowing face and people are like, oh, hold on, I'm not ready for that. That's too much glory for me. And what happens is Moses starts to wear a veil so people aren't freaked out. He'll go up on the mountain, take the veil off, he'll talk with God and his face glows and when he comes down, he has to hide it because people can't even handle the glory of God in the face of Moses. So now, Paul knows this reference. Paul has studied this 
backwards and forwards. And when the light shows up from heaven, I think he immediately knows, oh, glory has just shown up in my face. And it knocks him back. Moses' face shown because of the interaction. Paul's sight is gone because of the interaction. You cannot stand up in God unless he is protecting you. And Paul gets knocked down and his vision goes away. And he's so turned about by this experience that it starts to change and unravel everything. This makes me think of Isaiah 9-2. This old prophecy in the great prophet. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep, deep darkness, on them light has shone. And you know, Jesus came to fulfill that prophecy, right? Matthew 4, 15, and 16 quotes that verse in Isaiah 9-2 and said, Jesus, as he walked from Nazareth to Capernaum is walking in the very land that Isaiah 9-2 quotes and says, this is the light for people walking in darkness. Simeon holds the baby Jesus and declares him in Luke 2-32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. And Jesus says in John 12:46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So get this. Saul has been persecuting the church. And then God's glory and his presence show up. And the voice says, I'm Jesus. Jesus is being put on the same level as God. You see how this rocks Saul? Jesus is being put on the same level as God. Jesus is not dead. This is not a cult of crazies. Paul, Saul, has been so blind. He knows scripture back and forth, and yet he's missed Jesus. And here he is right in front of him. This changes Saul. Acts 28, 18 references Saul being sent to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. The same thing that's happening in Saul right now where he's going from darkness into light and he's got to walk through blindness in the process of healing so that he can really see, this is what captivates him for the rest of his life. I was blind and now I see and I'm going to take this light to the Gentiles. I'm going to take this light to places it has never been before, to people who have never seen it before. This will carry me the rest of my life. Three days later, God sends Ananias to heal Paul's blindness. And then Saul begins this three-day or three-year period of learning and unlearning. I'm not sure if you know this. He doesn't get up from where he was and then immediately go start leading the church and as a missionary. He actually spends three years. Think about the amount of time that Jesus spent with his apostles in his ministry, right? from when he started his ministry to the time that he was crucified and then rose again and ascended back up into heaven is about how long? About three years. Saul spends about that same amount of time unlearning everything he has held so dear and relearning everything about Jesus. He saw how blind he really had been. 
And then he spends three years after the experience. And then he starts in those three years to go back all of his accomplishments, all of the things that he knew so strongly and like deconstructing them. And he says, all of those things are rubbish compared to Jesus. Philippians 3, 4 through 11. This is his resume that we read earlier, only now it's got a different twist. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. This moment completely wrecks him and completely heals him in that. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, which is the track that he had been on. Touting his own righteousness, touting his own accomplishments. He says, now my righteousness, I recognize, does not come from what I do. My righteousness comes from God that depends on faith. Verse 10, that I may know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So at this point when he's writing this to the Philippians, he has made a complete reversal. Going from persecuting the church to being willing to be persecuted so that people could know Jesus. His zeal didn't fade, right? It just changed direction. It just changed subjects. Now his passion was to know and love Jesus and help others know and love Jesus. Saul encountered Jesus and it changed his life. So what do we take away? I mean, I start. Like, it does not matter how long your list of sin and brokenness is. You can all have all kinds of hurts and habits and hang-ups and all kinds of destruction to you and by you in your life. And it does not matter. God loves you. Jesus came for you and will pursue you. God is always good. God shows up in Saul's life. We know that he's always good, but he's not always gentle. One of my favorite conversations recently in a room, uh, some really great people when we're talking about the nature and character of God and one of the uh, conversations was like, God is always gentle, right? And Shalene says, no, he's not. Sometimes to me, he's like, stop, Shalene, stop. Can you hear that from her if you know her, right? And what I love about that is God speaks in our language, God speaks to us in a way that we will receive it, right? Sometimes he shows up gentle because he knows that's what we need. Moses says, I want to see your glory. and says, I'm going to hide you 
Because I want you to see my glory, but you only, I'm going to only give you what you can handle right now. If you need a gentle voice, I think God's going to show up in a gentle voice. If you need a voice where God is saying, stop, he'll use it for your good, for your life. He will knock you down to save you and heal you if that's what it needs. What other voice of God could have been used with Saul to get through? I'm not sure. And God uses the voice that Saul will hear so that he can heal. Have you heard the voice of God? Are you listening for it? Do you recognize when it shows up? Because sometimes it's a whisper. And sometimes it's a full-on stop you in your tracks. But you can't put them in a box and say, this is the only one that you will use for me. Everything else is nothing. God is always good. And he is always pursuing our health and our growth and our healing. And he'll use whatever voice he can to get at us. The third question I have is, do you have Saul's in your life? Do you have people who you would look at and say they are not likely candidates to be followers of Jesus? Saul was not a likely candidate, right? He had a resume that went in the entire opposite direction. And yet his story speaks to that idea that nobody, nobody is too far gone for grace. Paul received mercy. Do you have Saul's in your life who you would say, I can't even imagine them meeting Jesus and falling in love with him and giving their life to him? Don't quit on them. Continue to pray for them. Continue to ask God to show up in their life because that Saul may have a complete turnaround. Take the passion and use it in a different direction. Right? I hope you see Jesus in this encounter. That God, that God is passionately pursuing you. That God uses different voices to get our attention. And that the people in your life who you can't even imagine following Jesus, like God hasn't given up on them. I don't think we ought to either. We're going to respond today with worship and communion and singing. As we talk about Paul today, I think it's fitting to go back to say, like, how does Paul introduce communion? In 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26, this is what Paul says about what we do every Sunday. He says, I received from the Lord what I delivered to you. This is what I learned. This is what I explained. He says that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. So do this, eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we don't just have random crackers and juice out because they taste good, right? We do it because we remember Jesus. Jesus takes the bread 
and he rips it and he says, like, this is what I'm doing for you. I'm going to be ripped open. I'm giving my life, my body for you. And he takes the cup of wine and he says, this represents my blood that's being poured out and it's a new covenant that I'm sharing, a new life that you get because of what I'm giving. He gave everything. He doesn't just show up on the road. He shows up on the road after he had already given everything and then rose from the dead to conquer death itself. And we remember. We remember his sacrifice and we remember his glory and we worship and we hold on. And when he comes back someday as the fully reigning king in the kingdom, we get the glory in that. And until that day, we wait and we worship. I'm going to invite you, uh, invite you to come and take communion together. Here's what I will say about communion. This, this is really intended to be something for people who have put their trust and faith in Jesus. And so if that's not you, don't feel the pressure to come up and do that. Don't just go through the motions. Use it as something that is meaningful in your life to hold on to Jesus and to remember him, not just because it's what we do in church. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. And we thank you for your love. And we thank you that you don't quit pursuing us. That you go all the way through death to bring us back to you. Your heart for us is crazy love. And even while we were your enemies, even while uh, we were opposed to you, turned away from you, and sometimes even turning others away from you or hurting people who follow you. You pursue us and you love us. And we love you because you first loved us. Jesus, we will never forget who you are. We hold on to you. We worship you. Thank you for changing Saul. Thank you for transforming him to helping him truly see. And thank you that you do that for us as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.